the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome, everybody. Uh, Happy New Year again. Uh, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Now, we get on the air because of the engineering skills of Gabe. Uh, that's all he needs, just one name. Gabe gets us on the air. And uh, Andrew Herdliska produces this show each week for us. And in this first segment, I'm really pleased to introduce to you here in Central Florida, Felicia Song. She's a professor of sociology at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. Her new book is out, Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. Felicia, welcome to Orlando, Florida. How are you doing? I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me. What is this book about? Why was it important for you to write it? Well, it's a book about our digital practices of our times and how it is shaping us, forming us uh, to become certain kinds of people, living certain kinds of lives. And so um, I've been thinking about how it is that our digital media and technology have been forming our understandings and our experiences of identity and relationships for several years now. Um, And so I really wanted to write a book that actually um, provides a diagnosis of our digital times, um, but also suggests uh, a framework for how we can live. Um, the lives that we actually want to live. I think a lot of us feel kind of pushed around um, but our, by our digital demands. So that's, that's part of the motivation. Felicia, you open your book uh, with this topic, Being at Altitude, Understanding the Digital Ecology. Uh, can you um, uh, tell us more about that? Yeah. So the chapters titled Being at Altitude, and it's, um, it starts off with a, an analogy of how it is that um, for some of us, if we've had the chance to uh, get on top of a mountain, we know that um, when we're high up enough, um, we start getting headaches um, or we're dehydrated and we're at altitude. And if we don't realize we're at altitude, we don't know why we don't feel so great. Um, and I draw that picture as a way for understanding how uh, many of us feel um, frazzled 
Uh, we're uncomfortable. We're exhausted by our digital lives. Um, and it's very often difficult to pinpoint what exactly is wrong, right? Um, and so in this first chapter, um, I argue that it isn't just our devices or our email inbox that keeps uh, flooding with more <laughs> demands. Um, it is that, but it's also a much larger system. It's, it's an industry, a tech industry that is um, driving us and managing our attention. Um, there is a consumer society and commercialization um, in our culture that is behind that industry. Um, and so in this chapter, I try to help readers understand and diagnose the problem, right? Um, the, the, the problem of how our technologies are actually um, part of a much wider environment of culture, of economic systems, of, of, uh, of a market economy that is all making it difficult to change our habits um, or feel like we can. Felicia Song is our guest. Uh, Felicia, the book is called Restless Devices. <clears throat> We've come to topic two, the terms of agreement. What digital media companies have known all along, you tell us. Yeah, so um, in this chapter, um, I'm interested in um, unpacking how our digital media companies have uh, been doing uh, incredible research in figuring out what it is that keeps us hooked, um, what it is that draws us in um, neurologically, psychologically, um, what it is that keeps us on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, um, and how it is that all of this, all of these um, facets of our digital services and media are designed, right? Like it, it's, it's not um, an accident that when you're watching Netflix after one episode is done, within, you know, less than five seconds, the next episode starts rolling, right? Um, all of these uh, designs are intentional. They're well-researched. Um, and it's all built so that we are... Um, our, our attention is truly being manipulated and managed, right? Um, and so I think part of the issue that we're dealing with in American society is that we often think, or there's a, a narrative that the folks in Silicon Valley kind of built this wonderful um, technology um, to help us connect and get to know each other um, and communicate and express ourselves, and they didn't realize that there would be these negative consequences. They didn't realize that people might get addicted. Um, but the more you dig into um, what's actually happened, the more you realize, no, all of this was actually pretty intentional. They knew exactly what was going to happen. Um, and the degree of manipulation, the degree of understanding of how fear and anger drives us to keep scrolling um, on our social media feeds or keep watching more YouTube videos, all of that is very well understood and very much used 
um, for the interests of these digital media companies to keep us hooked. Felicia Song, she's in Santa Barbara, California, and we are having a nice chat about her book, Restless Devices. Topic number three, here we go, the industrialization of you and me, how social media makes relationships a business. What's that all about, Felicia? Yeah, so here I focus in on social media and how it is that it takes our identities and our relationships and makes it into a commodity. It makes it into a an object that can be packaged and sold. Um, and uh, I argue that when we are on social media, it has a way of driving us to think in terms of um, gaining more numbers, when what I mean by that is, you know, more followers, more likes, more retweets. It quantifies our worth, our sense of uh, significance. Um, it also drives us to perform our identities, perform it in a way that is um, more a way of broadcasting ourselves rather than being in relationship to specific people. Um, and it also causes, can cause us to see our relationships um, in transactional terms, right? That is, if we like someone else's post, uh, we kind of hope and expect that they'll like ours, right? There's a kind of reciprocity that is built into the ethic of being on social media. And while that's fine, you know, there's always been a gift economy in our relationships, there's a way in which the platforms kind of drive us um, to become more and more utilitarian, more instrumental, more transactional um, in the ways that we interact and kind of even view each other um, when we're in those spaces. Felicia, let's get to topic number four. Uh, You simply say the good news uh, what do you mean by that? What, uh, what's <laughs> up? Yeah, so this book is written from a Christian perspective, because that is the position um, that I have experienced and live into. And the good news is um, uh, an a introductory chapter into the second part of the book that suggests that uh, people of faith Uh, people, particularly from the Christian tradition, actually have resources within their faith tradition that is good news, good news to uh, this particular conundrum that many of us are experiencing, these digital dilemmas. Um, And so I I make a case that um, religious traditions, and in particular Christian Christianity has unique resources that we can bring to bear um, in trying to navigate our digital lives. Now, Felicia, it's time to get on to topic number five. Created for communion, settling for connection, a theological anthropology. Well, I'll tell you what, Felicia, you're going to have to really explain that one to us carefully. (laughs) Right on. Um, so a theological anthropology, that is just fancy, fancy terms uh, 
that is a stand-in for saying there is there are certain visions or definitions of what it means to be human, right? That's the anthropology part, what it means to be human, um, that are um, understood in relation to God, in relation to the divine. That's the theological part. Um, and so um, Christianity has a theological anthropology, you know, a picture of what it means to be human in relation to God. And in this chapter, I argue that as human beings, from a Christian perspective, we are created for communion. We are created um, for relationship with um, God, and that we will um, forever be seeking that communion in all different parts of our lives. Um, and when we don't seek it in God, we will continue to seek restlessly. Um, and other things in ways that are unfulfilled. And so what our technologies offer us are connections, right? They offer us ways to connect with other people, which can be incredibly beneficial, incredibly helpful, um, and wonderful in so many ways. Um, but it can, it, it only takes us so far. Um, in the end of the day, we are seeking a, a level of communion that is far deeper, that is far more intimate, that is much more present than the kinds of connections that our digital technologies can give us. Now, Felicia, topic number six, uh, digital practices as secular liturgy. Tell us more. Right. So um, this is the chapter where I unpack um, the framework for rethinking our digital practices. Um, I think it's helpful to start realizing that the routines, when I say digital practices, I just mean the routines or the habits that we have with our devices and our technologies. Um, if we start to see them as a kind of liturgy, which I know a lot of Christians are familiar with that term in, terms, uh, in, in the context of church, you know, we think um, certain Christian traditions uh, talk about liturgical worship. Right. On Sunday mornings, worship services follow a liturgy. Um, and so the idea is that um, liturgies are, are routines, they're rituals, right, that form us in a particular way of, of um, interacting with who God is. And so if we see our digital practices as liturgies, and this is borrowing from um, a philosopher, Jamie Smith's work, um, we start to see that our digital practices also form us. They form us liturgically. They form us in our habits, um, in our ways of thinking about what the good life is. Um, and so um, the problem is that um, they are secular liturgies. That is, they form us in ways that drive us away from the kingdom of God. Um, just as many cultural practices do. Um, and so what we need to do is start recognizing how they're forming us, shaping our vision of who God is, what it means to be human, and then um, consider what it means to take on counter liturgies. Again, this is drawing from Smith's work, where he says it's not just about taking out the bad, you know, taking out the bad habits. 
um, but it is filling our lives with counter liturgies, new practices, new habits that will move us towards the kingdom of God, move us towards the vision, the genuine and true vision of who God is and what our relationship with him should look like. Felicia Song is our guest. We've got another segment with Felicia talking about her book, Restless Devices. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. My guest is Felicia Song. She's a professor of sociology at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. We're talking about her book, Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. Felicia, we've arrived at uh, your seventh topic, reimagining time and attention. Soul formation in a culture of productivity. Uh, Fill us in. Right. So, so many of us think of our digital technologies as technologies that are supposed to make our lives more efficient, more productive, um, and, you know, time-saving devices. You know, that's an older term that we use with our technologies. Um, But the funny thing is, So many of us actually feel we have less time, right? Um, We feel a deep sense of scarcity, right? We're very anxious about our time. We we feel what some uh, scholars say is a type of time poverty. Um, And so um, that's all built into, right, this pervasive culture of productivity that we have in American society, right, this sense that we need to fill every single moment with some kind of productiveness or feeling stimulated or entertained, right? Um, And so in this chapter, I talk about how it is that from a Christian perspective, um, we are actually supposed to be a people um, who experience the abundance of time or the capacity to simply inhabit time rather than being focused on how to spend it um, or hoard our time. Um, And so um, time, right, um, is something that our digital technologies are often trying to transcend or trying to be more efficient with. Um, But in this chapter, I offer um, ways in which um, our time and the ways that we spend or, or Um, focus our attention in different parts of our lives um, are meant to uh, be gifts, right? Uh, Not, again, not commodities that we hoard or that we seek to spend. The time is something that we can um, be in. Um, And so the chapter kind of challenges the reader to consider what it means to be in time um, and to be present in time um, rather than constantly seeking to fill it with um, productivity, getting things done, um, reading things, consuming information, um, or simply being entertained. Felicia, tell us about topic number eight, embodied and embedded 
transforming sites of faithful presence and sacred spaces. Yeah, so this chapter is kind of a pairing with the previous one, because I think um, part of what I'm hoping readers will come away with is um, a framework, a framework for thinking, okay, if I want to think about adjusting some of my digital routines and habits, what can I do? Um, And what I'm trying to suggest is that one way we can do this is think about how we can protect certain times in our life, sacred time and sacred um, places or spaces. Um, so embodied and embedded, this chapter is focused on the, in the, on the realities of the fact that we have physical bodies. We are, um, we are, we are bodies that are in specific places. Um, we carry in us a presence when we are with people um, and a presence when we are with ourselves. And so I really encourage readers at this point to, to consider protecting that presence, right? Protecting um, and intentionally um, building boundaries and habits that help us be present to the people in our lives, um, whether that's people we're living with, people we're working with, or even standing in the supermarket line, checkout line, right? Being present to the people that are proximate and around us, um, and also um, being present to ourselves, right? Which I think many of us forget um, that, that we need to be in our bodies, um, present to ourselves, and that we can do uh, small, make small adjustments like, um, you know, when we wake up in the morning, um, instead of uh, automatically going to our phones or checking our devices, spending the first 10, 15 minutes of our day um, being in our bodies, um, being present to ourselves and the, the people around us, um, you know, making coffee, um, drinking tea. Seeing, seeing the sunrise, um, a fully human and embodied um, experience before we um, let all the demands and all the news of the day carry us, carry us away. Um, so this chapter really encourages us to really celebrate our embodiment rather than um, trying to um, minimize it or to even um, get rid of that of our lives. Felicia Song is our guest. Felicia, let's uh, get to topic number nine. The church as counter-liturgy, alternative futures of faith communities. Tell us more. Yeah, so um, the term liturgy is an interesting one um, because liturgy is something that is um, in its original Greek meaning, is the work of the people, right? It's not the work of individuals, but the work of the people. And one of the arguments I make is that if we're going to make changes in our lives with our digital devices, that while we can make individual changes, in the end of the day, it will only be sustainable if we make adjustments and changes as a group, as a community, um, because it really requires many others of us to share in these shifts 
in our digital routines and habits with our emails, with our texting, with how we manage our social media. Um, It's in doing it together that we can actually make real change um, and that that change um, can endure. And so I really see the church as an institution, as an organization that can be, that, that is fertile ground for being that community in which um, we can rethink our digital practices and rethink um, even our general practices of how we do life together. Um, I actually think this is a really interesting time historically uh, within the church to be considering this. Um, most churches have just gone through a really um, challenging spell with the pandemic of, of needing to go from being in person, uh, meeting in person to, to being online, you know, having services on YouTube or Facebook. Um, and now, um, as things are slowly opening up um, and, and church congregations and communities are gathering together, I think this is a really unique time um, for church communities to ask the question, well, what do, what do we really want to do when we are gathering together, right? That's, that's different from what we could do on YouTube or Facebook, right? Um, there were certainly lots of benefits that came with going online, but everyone felt all the drawbacks, too, right, of not actually being in person. And so I think there's a unique opportunity here for church leaders and congregations uh, to think about, well, what what are we doing? <laughs> what can we do that would really celebrate being together in our bodies, right? Um, what could we do um, when we gather on Sundays that really makes the time together sacred um, and truly a time of feasting and celebrating um, that would be good news and a relief even to the, the digital churn, the digital demands that so many people uh, feel burdened by in their everyday lives. Well, folks, our guest has been Felicia Song, professor of sociology at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. We've been talking about her new book, Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. We've got more. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening, of course, to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We will be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. We were delighted to have Felicia Song with us in that first segment. Uh, we go to Simpsonville, South Carolina, and uh, we have found there uh, Joe Pierce, Joseph Pierce. Uh, he's the author of Benedict Sixteenth, Defender of the Faith. Joseph, welcome to Orlando, Florida. I'm so glad that you have time for us. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Joe, tell us, uh, who was Benedict XVI, defender of the faith? Why is he important? Well, he, I think he's important on, on two specific levels. One, as the right-hand man of St. John Paul II, for almost the entirety of John Paul's papacy, that Benedict, uh, the Cardinal Ratzinger, as he then was, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, was 
Gumpel II is basically right-hand man, the person who uh, made things happen during uh, John Paul's pontificate, and especially, of course, as, as uh, John Paul's health began to fail. He certainly carried the weight of John Paul's uh, pontificate on his own shoulders. So this first is that. And then, of course, following the death of uh, St. John Paul II, uh, Joseph Ratzinger was elected Pope Benedict XVI. And then, at least in that second aspect, uh, his role uh, as Pope and what he did as Pope that's, uh, that I think is very important. Those two things together make up the, the, the bulk of his legacy. But the, as Cardinal Pell says on the cover of my book, that, that, that also Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, is the best theologian among all the popes. So he also has this, should we say, lasting legacy as being one of the great theologians in the Church's history. Uh, you open your book with a chapter called Living with Big Brother. Uh, what's that about? Yeah, you know, one of the things I like, I you know, I, I am, I'm a convert to the faith largely under the influence of G.K. Chesterton, and uh, G.K. Chesterton loves wordplay, loves playing with words, and, and I've sort of caught that from him, if you like, as an infection. So there's a play with words there. Big Brother has two meanings. On the one sense, he has uh, that the, the Joseph Ratzinger has an older brother, Georg, who also became a priest. Um, uh, so he's different with Big Brother in the sense he's the younger brother. But also, of course, in the other sense, Big Brother is Adolf Hitler, that, that, um, that, that uh, Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, grows up um, uh, during the reign of the Nazis. Uh, and therefore, when, when he talks about, uh, in the speech before he was elected as Pope, he talked about the dictatorship of relativism. We see how relativism as a philosophy manifests itself in all sorts of tyrannical ways in terms of communism and the Soviet Union and, and communist China, but also in terms of national socialism, the Nazis in Germany. And so, so Joseph Ratzinger grew up experiencing this dictatorship of relativism, first of all by the Nazis ruling in Germany, and then after the defeat of the Nazis, the whole eastern part of Germany was, of course, handed over to the communist Soviet empire. So this man from his childhood had a great deal of experience of what he called the dictatorship of relativism. Uh, I want you to move to the next topic, Heiliggeist or Zeitgeist, uh, question mark. Uh, what, what's that yeah. about? What's that mean? Well, I think this is a key aspect of, of the whole of life, basically, the whole history of the Church, um, that, and from the time of the Gospel. We're told in the Gospel we can't serve two masters, we can't serve God and mammon, we have to choose. And basically the Heidegger Geist is, I mean, obviously Ratzinger's German, so I'm playing on words again. Heidegger Geist is the, is the German word for uh, Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit, uh, and Zeitgeist uh, is the spirit of the age, the time spirit. So Heidegger Geist or Zeitgeist is what do we choose? Do we choose to follow God? Do we choose to, fo choose to follow the Holy Spirit? Or do, do we choose to follow the spirit of the age? And within the church, this manifests itself self basically in every generation between what Chesterton said, do we want a church that will move the world, or do we want a church that will move with the world? And the modernists want always the church to move with whatever fashions and fads are out there and be basically become a servant of the spirit of the age, whereas the Orthodox know that the teaching of Jesus Christ is the same in all ages and that the world needs to be moved by the gospel. The gospel does not need to be moved by the world. My guest is Joseph Pierce. We're talking about his book, Benedict the Sixteenth, Defender of the Faith. Uh, topic number three, Joe weapons of mass destruction. 
Uh, where does that fit into this uh, dialogue? Well, again, an, another play on words, because uh, obviously the words of weapons of mass destruction was very much in the vocabulary during the time of the uh, Second Iraq War. So we know what weapons of mass destruction can be uh, all sorts of, uh, of, of terrorist uh, um, ways of causing chaos. But here the players in the word is, 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 is the holy mass, the liturgy of the church, uh, and how the Pope Benedict was a defender of the timeless aspects of the church's liturgy of, of holy mass against those who, again, sought to modernize it with, with newfangled ideas that were in keeping with the spirit of the age and not in keeping with the spirit of God. So he also, you know, through books such as The uh, the Spirit of the Liturgy, and then through his, uh, as Pope, that was before he became Pope, and then as Pope, uh, with his uh, um, motu proprio Samorum Pontificum, he, he was a great defender on those timeless elements of the Mass that are leaders closer into the mystery of God's sacrifice on our behalf, and he was defending that against those who merely want to turn the Mass into a, some sort of communal meal, uh, where we're just sort of get gathering together rather than actually worshipping the Lord. Now, Joe, I want you to get to this topic, the rise of Ratzinger and the fall of man. What does that mean? Yeah, basically, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, or Joseph Ratzinger, uh, became uh, known uh, globally uh, within the church and also came to the attention of uh, uh, John Paul II um, through his theology, through his theological writings. And uh, the rise of Ratzinger, the fall of man, this connects to the fact that he wrote a wonderful book uh, on the book of Genesis, on, on creation, um, seeing it uh, in the light of timeless uh, philosophical and theological truths and the nature of who we are as human beings in the light of who we are as being made in the image of God. So this this deep understanding of, of the, the, the inexplicable connection between who we are as human beings and our, our creator uh, was at the heart of this theological uh, exegesis on, on the book of Genesis, and that brought him to the attention of the world. It, it, it made him sort of a, a globally recognized great theologian who was listened to, and also, and, and especially, he was greatly admired by uh, John Paul II, and that was one of the reasons that uh, John Paul II chose uh, Cardinal Ratzinger as his right-hand man, as his chief ally during his uh, papacy. We're visiting with uh, Joseph Pierce from his home in South Carolina, the book, Benedict the 16th, Defender of the Faith. Uh, Topic number five, Joe, it's simply called being human. Uh, Explain that. Yeah, and again, yet another play on words. You have to forgive all these play on words. Of course, Mm -hmm. being human is a an inversion of human being. Um, uh, the, the key thing is, what is it? Who are we as, as human persons? And again, you know, the, 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 the Pope Benedict's anthropology, his understanding of who we are, is at the heart of what he teaches. And he understands us basically as being made in God's image and being made ultimately to sacrifice ourselves uh, for each other and for God, the two great commandments are to love the Lord thy God and to love thy neighbor. And, and a Christian understanding of love is, is, has nothing to do with emotions or feelings. It has to do with a conscious, rational choice to freely choose to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, for our friends, our neighbors, our enemies, and of course for our God. And God himself shows us the way, of course, in the incarnation 
and in the crucifixion and subsequent resurrection of Jesus Christ. He shows us what love is. Love is inseparable from the sacrificing of ourselves for others. That's at the heart of uh, Ratzinger's and Pope Benedict's teaching. Now, <clears throat> I want you to get to this topic, the spirit and anti-spirit of Vatican II. Yeah, again, very important because the, the, the Second Vatican Council, uh, there, there are various documents, and there's a big difference between what the Second Vatican Council actually taught, which um, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, Cardinal Ratzinger, and Pope Benedict always uh, supported, what the actual documents teach, as distinct from things done in the name of the so-called spirit of Vatican II, uh, which was really the anti-spirit of Vatican II because it took... Uh, uh, the Vatican II documents turned them on their head, inside out, manipulated them, edited them, and just took what the modernists wanted to read from them, ignoring the documents as a whole. So there's this textual abuse, if you like, of the teaching Second Vatican Council led to all sorts of nonsense in the 1970s and 80s. And uh, really, the election of uh, John Paul II in 1978, and then the appointment of Joseph Vatziger as JP2's uh, right-hand man, uh, led to a Catholic restoration that, 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 that turned back the tide of this anti-spirit of Vatican II and brought the Church back onto more of an even keel in, in line with and the balance of orthodoxy. Uh, let's get to topic seven, uh, sex, slavery, and false liberation. Um, what's that mean? What's that about? And again, you know, the, 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 the Pope, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, this is all... The, uh, what he taught prior to becoming Pope, but of course he, he affirmed it as Pope. Now, first of all, our understanding of sexual relations, um, he was very much in keeping with the authentic teaching of the Church, as in uh, Paul's document, Humanae Vitae, uh, the sanctity of, of, of human life, and that um, that if we forget chastity in uh, when we talk about uh, sexual relations, we end up with slavery, uh, and in the sense that we become addicts, we become addicted to our sexual impulses, we begin to see reality through our loins and not through our hearts and our heads, we become uh, addicts. And an addict, uh, someone who's addicted to something, is not free. So to talk about sexual liberation uh, in the name of licentiousness is basically to talk about, it's, it's nonsense, it's basically to talk about be, uh, becoming addicted to sexual practices. And in the other sort of liberation here, he was very much against the false theology of liberation theology, which was Marxism dressed up in Christian language, which of course was rampant, uh, particularly throughout uh, uh, South America uh, in the latter half of the 20th century, how, how um, many Catholics and Catholic theologians easy, even had embraced uh, Marxism uh, and dressed it up in, in, in theological language. Well, he exposed that as basically being not authentically a part of the spirit of the gospel. Now, uh, Joe, I want you to explain to us the spirit of the liturgy in your book. My guest is Joe Pierce. Fill us in on that. Yeah, again, Joseph Ratzinger, I think in 2000, so just a few years before his election, uh, wrote a book called The Spirit of the Liturgy, where he he talked about the authentic uh, sacrificial aspects of the the Mass and 
showing that there need to be a hermeneutic, uh, what he called a hermeneutic of continuity. In other words, that the mass of all ages uh, has to be seen as one. There's an authentic continuum, uh, uh, a thread that cannot be broken. And a lot of the liturgical innovations that came into the church in the late 20th century uh, were breaks with this continuity. And he, he was showed us in the spirit of the G how, how the Novus Ordo, the, the new order of the Mass, needs to be in harmony with what he would later call the extraordinary form of the Mass, um, the, the traditional Mass, traditional Latin Mass, how the two need to communicate with each other uh, for the sense of, uh, of being as ultimately at one and in harmony uh, and not one being a denial of the other. In other words, he, he's trying to heal... Uh, what would otherwise be a rupture in the church's tradition. And again, this was great work, not only of theology, uh, but also, I think, of healing. It actually showed how we could bring uh, the church in harmony with what the church has always been uh, in its worship of the Lord in the sacred liturgy. Um, My guest in Simpsonville, South Carolina, is uh, Joseph Pierce. Uh, We're talking about his book, Benedict the Sixteenth. Uh, speaking of books, we got a break coming up, but I do want to tell you about my latest book. It's just out. It's called uh, "Every Day Is Game Day." I did it with a pastor friend named Mark Atterbury, and uh, it's three hundred and sixty-five daily devotions, all with a sports theme. And um, and and I think you're going to get a lot out of the book. Uh, go up to Amazon, and when you order Benedict the Sixteenth, Joe Pierce's book, uh, get a copy of uh, Every Day is Game Day. And uh, I think you're going to get a lot out of that book, just as you will with Joe Pierce's book. Uh, secondly, I want to tell you we're still working hard on trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and uh, you can be a big help. Go to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com. And just check in. Just say, good idea. I'd like to be part of this. Um, I'm, I'm all for this. Uh, Orlando's ready to become a Major League Baseball city. OrlandoDreamers.com. We got more with Joseph Pierce right after these messages here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We will return. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. I guess it's Joseph Pierce. He's uh, the author of Benedict the XVI. Uh, Joe, um, here's the ninth topic I want you to talk about. Have a miss... Pop them <laughs> with an exclamation point. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, unravel that one yeah. for us. Yeah, basically, you know, this, it, it worked out quite well because the, we, in the first half of the interview, we actually discussed the first half of the book, uh, the first uh, nine chapters, first eight chapters, which are uh, the life of and, and, and um, importance of Joseph Ratzinger, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, prior to becoming Pope. And the second part of the book is his uh, importance as a pope, as Pope Benedict XVI, and that begins with Chapter 9, Habemus Papum, which is, uh, we have a pope, in an exclamation mark, as you say, in, uh, in Latin. Uh, it's, it's his election as pope and how that was um, greeted. So for, for most Catholics who, who are in love with the church, you know, they were 
they were um, delighted that John Paul II's uh, great ally uh, uh, and comrade in arms, so to speak, should, should be his successor. But there were modernists in the church that basically wanted the church to move with the times and, and not be, be true to the tradition that, that, that called him names such as he's God's Rottweiler. And what I talk about in the book, where he's not so much God's Rottweiler as a German shepherd, and what he's done throughout his life is to, is to keep the wolves in sheep's clothes, clothing at bay. And it's those wolves in, in sheep's clothing, those people within the church that are trying to make the church sort of their own deplorable e- epoch, uh, that um, that he's been a great defender of. So that's 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 uh, that's the chapter that deals with his becoming pope. Let's move to uh, topic number ten: young people and the love of God. Yes. So uh, following his election, Pope Benedict XVI went to his homeland. The next, uh, as Providence would have it, the next World Youth Day, which is of course what the World Youth Days were were set up by John Paul II. Uh, and the next one scheduled was in Cologne, in, in Pope Benedict's own country. Of course, John Paul II, in passing, was unable to host that. So uh, his successor, Pope Benedict, went back to his homeland, to Cologne, and uh, was greeted again by hundreds of thousands of young people. Uh, and I think that what you know, young people in the love of God, that what he had to say to them was that basically that the youth of the world need to carry the torch of the love of Christ into future generations. It's the, it's the responsibility of every generation to carry on the torch of the gospel, the torch, the torch of God's love, and the love of neighbor from one generation to the next. And so what he taught uh, and preached at World Youth Day in Cologne was this undying flame of love, if you like, which we passed down through the centuries from one generation to the other. And he is an older man, of course, and that's Pope, asking the young people to hand that torch on. Now, <clears throat> Joe, let's uh, get to the topic of faith and reason. Tell us more. Yes, the Catholic Church has always taught from the earliest days, uh, from the time of the Church Fathers, from people such as St. Augustine, and then in the Middle, Middle Ages, people such as St. Thomas Aquinas, that there's an inextricable bond, what you might even call an indissoluble marriage between, in Latin, fides et ratio, between faith and reason, that these are married, they're, they're one flesh, and you can't separate them. You know, an irrational faith ends up just being fideist and, 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 and weird and mystical and heretical, goes off in all sorts of weird directions. But reason without faith and without the presence of God ends up being irrational. So we have to keep faith and reason together. And, and Pope Benedict, for instance, in his, in his Regensburg address, which he made shortly after being elected, and throughout his life, you know, taught and, ex- and, and insisted upon and accentuated this uh, inexplicable connection between faith and reason, that we as Catholics are being entirely rational in our understanding of God's relationship with us. Now, let's get to this topic. Restoring tradition. Tell us more, Joe. Yeah, basically, you know that uh, the, 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 the madness that that that, that uh, came in the wake of the so-called spirit of Vatican II, which we've talked about already, led to all sorts of nonsense ideas and nonsense practices uh, coming into the, the life of of of, of uh, liturgy and and of theology that would be unrecognizable by previous generations of Catholics. It's a real 
break. It's a revolution away from authentic Catholic teaching. So a large part of Pope Benedict's papacy was to restore a traditional understanding of, of the Church as the mystical body of Jesus Christ, um, not just not just a human institution, it's the mystical body of Jesus Christ working sacramentally in every generation throughout all the centuries, and also this that the church as being the church triumphant in heaven, uh, the church suffering in purgatory, and the church militant on earth. That, that, that we in time, if you like, are the Milus Christi, the soldiers of Christ. So this understanding we have to restore tradition from those who have sought to, to, to destroy it. And that, I think, is a major aspect of Benedict XVI's papacy. Now, Joe, let's uh, uh, attack this topic, faith, hope, and clarity. What are you writing there? Yeah, now, this refers to some of uh, Pope Benedict's uh, papal encyclicals, uh, his teaching as Pope. You know, he, he had an encyclical on, on, on faith and hope. And obviously, again, a play on words, we normally say faith, hope, and charity, um, but this is faith, hope, and clarity, because what he does, he brings this understanding of faith and reason, this very, uh, if you like, uh, sharp, incisive theological mind rooted in the teaching of the Church to the issues such as faith and hope and love, uh, and and. and discusses them with a clarity, with a clearness. And one of the brilliant things about Pope Benedict XVI is that he can talk about the most difficult theological issues in a, in a language which is very accessible to the ordinary person on the street. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't write or speak, speak above our heads. That's why I say faith, hope, and clarity. There's a clearness in what he teaches. Even if he's teaching about difficult things, he manages to actually say it with a clarity that allows the ordinary person on the street, uh, such as me, I'm not a trained theologian, to, to, under, to understand what he's saying. Uh, Joseph, I want you to uh, explain to us God and globalism as we get towards the end of your book. Yeah, so he, he, he issued another uh, encyclical um, uh, looking at uh, part of the tradition of the Church's social teaching, how the Church understands social problems, politics, etc., economics, and, you know, the, the, he tackled the, the, the fact that we're living in an increasingly globalist culture um, and the, the challenges of that, because on the one hand, of course, you know, that uh, it brings people together. On the other hand, also, however, it makes government bigger and bigger and further and further away from the people. So there's a great challenge here, if you like, to civil liberty, to political freedom. Um, and that, that's what he addresses in that. So, again, part of this tradition, you know, previous popes such as... Uh, uh, Leo XIII, Pius XI, um, John Paul II had all taught about the Church's uh, understanding of global issues, and Pope Benedict was continuing in that tradition. Joe, explain to us um, a pilgrimage to England, and then your last chapter is the defender of the faith. We've got about a, a minute left. Sure. Well, the, the pilgrimage to England, one, one of the most heartfelt things for me, being an Englishman, as you probably gathered from my accent, um, is that he went he went to England and uh, as part and beatified that John Henry Newman, this great um, doctor of the church, as he now is, who's subsequently been canonized. So uh, this, this was a great moment of joy for me, his coming to my country and, and then beatifying this wonderful 
saint of the church. And Defender of the Faith is just my conclusion at the end of the whole book that we should admire and support and love Pope Benedict XVI because he has been a tireless, indefatigable defender of the Catholic faith throughout the whole of his life as a priest, as a cardinal, and as a pope. Well, I'm so pleased, Joe, that we have a chance to visit. Uh, Thanks for your time. Congratulations on your book. And uh, I'm so glad that uh, folks here in Orlando got a chance to meet you here by radio. And I it's wish my pleasure, Pat. Thanks uh, for having me. And I wish you all the very best, all the very best. Well, folks, uh, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. And uh, we're always very pleased when you when you join us. We've got a wrap-up, and we always do that at the end of the show. We've got a wrap-up right after these messages. So uh, stay with us. We'll be right back here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Well, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, in the first segment, uh, you heard Felicia's song, and we were very pleased to uh, welcome her to Orlando. And then uh, Joseph Pierce was with us from South Carolina talking about his book, Benedict the Sixteenth, Defender of the Faith. Well, folks, I want to encourage you uh, in your reading. You want to be reading not only the Bible and good devotional material, but uh, you need to have a stack of good books lined up. Uh, It's good for your brain. It's good for your education. It's good for every aspect of your life. I think the highest praise you can give someone just about is to say, well, he is well-read or she is widely read. So uh, head to your library, head to Barnes & Noble, Uh, be a reader this year. Well, folks, we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay tuned all day long to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. And we will see you next weekend. Have a great weekend. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time where faith comes by hearing. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.